Oh my gosh, look at Papa. There, right behind this television station, live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face to face. And I'm your host, Sean McCraney. And this is my dear friend, Jocelyn. Love her and love her family. And she's being so good right now. She's mesmerized by seeing herself on TV. And, and, and she's just a doll and we love her. We love her parents and we love her grandparents and I'm handing her off. <laughs> Whether you're watching Heart of the Matter on the NRB Network, DirecTV Channel 378, or listening to it on AM 820, The Truth, on Sunday afternoons from 1 to 2 p.m., we welcome you. Heart of the Matter is available uh, anywhere in the world right now by going to hotm.tv, clicking on live stream uh, video, and you can watch it streaming anywhere in the world. We invite you to do that. How about your Sundays? What are you doing on Sunday afternoon? First from 1 to 2 p.m., like I said, KUTRAM 820 The Truth replays uh, Heart of the Matter on the program. Then join us every week up at the University of Utah from 2.30 to 3.30 for a verse-by-verse Bible study. It's uh, no matter who you are, all are welcome, no matter what your religious affiliation or beliefs. We just uh, study the word, pray, have some food, and uh, talk and go home www.calvarycampus.com for more information like times and locations. Every now and again, a church invites me to come speak, and uh, I get to see what's going on in the state uh, within the body of Christ. Last Sunday evening, I had the privilege of speaking at Utah Christian Fellowship. Now, just uh, a few hours before, we were teaching up at the U of U about the first or early church as found in Acts 2 and the elements that are found there. And I have to tell you, the Utah Christian Fellowship that I saw, the elements there, the word being taught, uh, fellowship, sharing meals, praising God, all those same elements that were in the early church were there. If you are in search of a solid Bible teaching church, uh, check out Utah Christian Fellowship. They're located right near jo Jordan Commons uh, in West Valley. So I've got a question for anyone and everyone out there. Think about this. If a person picks up the Bible and just started reading from Genesis to Revelation, when they finished and they believed what the Bible said, remember, and they believed what the Bible said, what would they be? They would be Christians. They start with Genesis, they read all the way through Revelation, they believe what the Bible says, they would be Christian. If they read the Bible and believed it, they would not be a Mormon. They would not be a Jehovah's Witness. They wouldn't be a Christian scientist. They wouldn't be a Scientologist. Why? Because in order to become a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Scientologist or any of those other groups, you have to read their 
proprietary stuff in addition to or in exclusion to, of the Bible. Does that make sense to you? Mormonism claims to be Christian, and yet if someone reads the Christian manual all by itself, they would never wind up a Mormon, ever. Uh, the manual wouldn't lead them to Mormonism because there's no Mormonism within the manual about what makes Mormonism distinct from other faiths. By reading the Bible in context, a person would never walk away believing in the Book of Mormon. They would never walk away believing in multiple gods, in a Melchizedek priesthood, in temple rites, including wearing garments, a new and everlasting covenant, eternal marriage. Uh, these things can't be found in the Bible, but are brought into people's lives and taught by LDS missionaries and by their extra books. And that's what makes somebody a Mormon. So they want to still be considered Christian. With that, let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, need you and love you. We seek you tonight uh, here in our station studio as our volunteers and our staff work hard to keep this program running. We pray for uh, elimination of technical difficulties. We pray for our callers. We pray for our audience members, whether they are here or out there uh, in the TV land we just, or cable land or internet. Lord, uh, we need you and pray for your spirit and thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. It is vitally important in the search for God that we make a concerted effort to distinguish between truth and error, fact and fable, doctrines of Christ versus the imaginations of men. Uh, of fables, Paul warns in 2 Timothy 2, uh, 4, 3 through 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Heathen religions have always abounded with fictions and fables and myths. Even the Jewish teachers were renowned for a number of fables which they had introduced into the reliefs. This too caused Paul to write in Titus, don't give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Speaking to the faithful Christians in his day, the Apostle Peter wrote just prior to his death, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty." They often make sense. Sometimes these fables are even more inviting than God's truths find, found in the word, which is why they proliferate like mushrooms in a dark hothouse constructed by religious men. The only effective deterrent to controlling and eliminating fables is an effective, contextual, and liberal understanding of the word of God. Correctly and contextually understood, the word exposes these fables and commandments of men. And the further away a person or a people get from the word of God, uh, the more likely they will begin to embrace these religious fables. Now, sometimes fables are created to help people cope with the brutalities of the truth, of death and of suffering and of this life. When I was eight or seven or eight years old, I was scheduled to have my tonsils out. And instead of telling me the doctor goes down my throat with a pair of, uh, with a scalpel or a pair of sharp scissors and cuts the things out, 
My mom created a fable as a means to help me cope with the event and to provide her son with some peace and assurance. She said I would snore them out, by the way. Maybe, maybe, I don't believe this, but maybe some myth-making is acceptable when speaking to children about uncomfortable events or situations. But when it comes to God and His Word, there is nothing more pathetic than grown men and women who would rather believe in a lie uh, to comfort themselves and their pain and their fears than the plain truths that are found in God's Word. Now, two biblical facts Joseph Smith found untenable and needing revision were the ideas that human existence begins in the womb and that we all begin our life as creatures rather than children of God. The idea that God formed us from the dust of the earth and breathed the beginnings of life into human beings was absolutely preposterous to Joseph Smith. And borrowing from heretical Greek myths, he gave the Mormons a fable called the pre-mortal existence. Like all embraced myths, this one fable sprouted a subsequent number of other horrible fables within Mormonism. Boyd K. Packer, apostle of the LDS Church today, said, quote, The idea that mortal birth is the beginning is preposterous. Listen to this. There is no way to explain life if you believe that, end quote. There's no way to explain life if you believe that. Really, Boydster, really. Now, no way to explain life at all unless you uh, believe in your way. What Packard is referring to here is perhaps one of the most, uh, has produced perhaps one of the most dastardly results in LDS doctrine. The idea that we are all placed here on earth based on our goodness, based on our valiancy, based on our supposed uh, choices before coming here and getting physical bodies. Then this idea sprouted even more insidious uh, ideological mushrooms, okay? Don't believe me? Listen to this. 10th president of the LDS Church, Joseph Fielding Smith, said in his book, The Way to Perfection, page 48, quote, Is it not a reasonable belief that the Lord would select the choice spirits to come through the better grades of nations? Moreover, is it not reasonable to believe that less worthy spirits would come through less favored lineage? Does this not account in a very large part for the various grades of color and degrees of intelligences we find in the earth? I'm not kidding you. The LDS believe that people's skin color, the way they are, the nations that they live in, are there because of things that those people did in this mythical pre-existence. That's why they come and they get darker skin or they, they live in places like India or Africa. One of the biggest problems with this is that it infers that white Americans were superior to black Africans, brown people from India, yellow people from China, and which makes God a, a, a white supremacist and not a God who himself de designed diversity of color, okay? Listen to what Apostle Melvin J. Ballard said in LDS General Conference of April 1915. Ready? 
Quote, we know from the doctrines that we have received that men and women have existed before coming into this life for countless ages and that we have been developing certain qualities. And the reason we have been separated into great classes as the Negro race and other races of the earth is not a matter of caprice. That means capriciousness on God's behalf. He goes on and says, God did not take three beautiful children yesterday morning and say to one, you go to the Negro woman and to another, you go to the Chinese mother and to another, you go down to that beautiful Christian home. In my opinion, there are classes and races and separation into different groups and conditions before we came to this world and all are getting what they are entitled to receive here. I grew up on this stuff and the doctrines have not changed. The emphasis may have been redirected. The doctrines are still in place. Even if you remove the racial connotations from these quotes, uh, which result from their pre-mortal existence myth, there still remains a very ugly residue, and that's a residue of pride. Um, Gordon B. Hinckley reported it in the Insign Magazine, November 2004, page four, this. He said, quote, I do not, I do not know what we did in the pre-existence to merit the wonderful blessings we enjoy. Uh, notice how Hinckley takes the conditions of our lives and removes them from the hands of God Almighty and places them firmly in our own grasp. That guy who they called a prophet said, I don't know what we did in the pre-existent to merit this wonderful existence we have. Forgetting that most of the nation doesn't live, Gordon B. Hinckley, in your wonderful existence. Most of the world doesn't live in this wonderful existence. And therefore, what you're saying is, I don't know what, how, I don't know how good I was just to merit all these blessings. While well, that poor guy over there who, who doesn't have a very good job and isn't very smart and is missing a leg because his dad cut it off when he was a boy because he was mad at him. I don't know what he did when he was in the pre-existence. That's really what they're saying. This fable of a pre-existence is so forcefully and repetitively presented to Latter-day Saints that most people who leave the faith have a more difficult time of letting it go than almost any other except maybe for their errant doctrine that God the Father has a, a physical body like a man. Now, admittedly, when the story of a pre-existence is placed before us as part of a grand fairy tale-ish thing, like a, like, a, like a part of a Disneyland, they might have a, a section in Disneyland called the pre-existence and Mormons would flock to it because, I mean, it's just so part of the fairy tale. It makes great sense to the carnal mind, okay? Who wouldn't want to believe that, they, that we existed forever and ever as these spirits with heavenly mother and father or heavenly mothers and father creating many spirits and we're all a family up there and everything's good. Who wouldn't want to believe that we once hung out with them and because we were so good and obedient that he allowed us to come down and get bodies like this and that if you're white and rich and American and LDS, you are especially good in that state. Uh, having history and origin plays a powerful role in helping establish a person in their life and gives them a, a worldview and gives them a purpose to their existence. This is why the best mass movements um, work very hard at, as a, at establishing a historical foundation upon which they can say this is where we started from because it gives people this identity uh, from where they came from.
I had a friend of mine, his name was Mark in the School of Ministry, and he tells a story about growing up in his home and his parents always talked about his great French aristocracy, the heritage he came from of being in these great uh, aristocratical uh, lines, and he was such a valiant guy, and his mind was filled with this imagery of grand castles and valor and wealth and power, and uh, all he said uh, helped make him the man he was. And then one day in his early 20s, he learned that he had been adopted and that his natural parents were actually some pretty messed up people from Chicago. And that the fairy tale died for Mark right then and there. And he was left without a history, without moorings, without a name. Okay. The beautiful thing was that this is exactly where God wanted Mark to be because after a season of rebellion, he came to know the Lord and embraced him as his only real father and adopted his heritage as his own. But it took humility for Mark to come to know God, not a tie to French aristocracy, which he said had he continued in that myth, he never would have been humbled to, ask, to give him what God wanted. He was fine in and of himself. A second biblical fact Joseph Smith disliked was the idea that all human beings at birth are merely God's creatures because of the fall. And, only, and it is only through faith in his son that every human creature can actually become a child of God created in his image. In the face of this biblical teaching, Joseph Smith taught that we are all born children of God, rightful heirs to him and his throne, because it is from this throne that all people supposedly came. And to support these myths, Mormons have created stories and paintings and songs, even stage plays that have become somewhat ubiquitous in the LDS culture. Plan of salvation charts are drawn out to teach little children that they had a pre-existent with their heavenly father and mother and they're born here and there's a veil of forgetfulness placed over their brain and they can't remember that pre-existence so now they're here on earth to be tested. One of the most beloved LDS hymns stands in direct opposition to the biblical truth about our origins. If this hymn was sung by a Bible-believing person, it would say something like, I am a creature of God, sinful, dumb, and wild, and in this state I will remain till I become his child through spiritual rebirth through Jesus. That's, that's what it would be for if a Christian sang it, okay? But the LDS sing, I am a child of God. No rebirth necessary. And he has sent me here, has given me an earthly home with parents kind and dear. You can't sing this if your dad cut your leg off when you were little. Uh, <laughs> Biblically, there are four or five main passages literally interpreted and selectively chosen by the LDS, which Mormon missionaries use to prove to the unsuspecting the fable of a pre-existence. Okay? Job 38.7 is the first one. Uh, let's take them one by one. When the entire drama of Job ends and uh, Job is nearing its conclusion. God steps in and speaks with Job. Now, Job has been saying, God, you know, he hasn't denied him. He's just said, you know, what are you doing? Okay, and God replies with some difficult probing and uh, questions. He says in Job 38, 4, and the missionaries use this to prove a preexistence. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who has laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who stretched the line upon it? 
Where upon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now the LDS will say, see, Mr. Investigator, there was a time when all the sons of God shouted for joy. This was the pre-mortal existence. And uh, look at the context of these passages, okay? Job has been questioning God, and God rhetorically asks, where were you when I laid the foundations of this earth, Job? Uh, a direct inference from God was, you weren't even around, dude. Don't, you don't know how I laid the foundations of the world. You don't know how I did anything. You have no right to question me, Job. Even through all Job had been through, God still he doesn't come back and say, oh, Job, you've been through so much. It's okay. He, he talks to Job and straightly tells him, you are nothing but dust. Where were you when I did this? With this being the context, the phrase, the morning stars and all the sons of God must be referring to something else. Now, the Chaldee version of the Old Testament reads, and all the troops of angels shouted for joy instead of the sons of God. Let me also explain something here. In Genesis 1.1, we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. This was when the Lord laid the foundations of the earth well before man was ever made. This is why God asks, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Meaning you were not anywhere around in the beginning, Job. Mormonism says, oh, we were. That very phrase tells us that we weren't, okay? So uh, graphics person, skip ahead. I'm going to move along. Uh, we're going to jump to the next one. That's Ecclesiastes 12.7. The LDS missionaries use this saying, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. And you see the LDS missionaries will say to the unsuspecting and the untrained, the Bible even says the spirit will return to God who gave it. Whoa, the investigator says, I must have existed in the spirit world, as you said before my life here. Looking back to Genesis, which is where Christians gain their understanding of where men and women originated, we know that God breathed into a, a body that he had created from the dust, from the clay of Adam. And uh, the... Adam and the rest of humanity, as, the, as humanity is propagated, began with this breath God breathed into that, that body of clay. This breath called the haruch, excuse me of the Hebrew people, the haruch, uh, was God's and was from God, okay? And it is the very breath or the spirit in human beings, and it's differentiated from what gives animals life. Animals are bipartite, human beings are tripartite. Adam, dust, clay, breath became a living soul. Three in one, not two in one like animals. In Zechariah 12:1, it says, The spirit of the word of the Lord for Israel said the Lord, excuse me, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him, okay? Job 27, three says, all the while my breath is in me and the spirit of God is in my nostrils. The spirit of God breathed into man, made us a living soul. 
But the fall killed the spirit and man became carnal and devilish and operating only by his body and soul. This is why Jesus said you have to be born again. That Holy Spirit has to move back in. Just like Adam was breathed into and gave him life, we need to have that Holy Spirit come into us and give us life and make us new creatures and make us a tripartite uh, being again. You get that? The spirit of God is life. We will return to God, our souls either alive by that spirit of God or dead to it. Okay. Romans 8, 16, 17. The use of this passage is a perfect example of the LDS taking a single line from scripture and using them to support their fables. It says the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. There could be no more true passage in scripture. But remember, that passage is talking to people who have been regenerated by faith through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That has nothing. Of course, we're the children of God because we've been regenerated, but not in our natural state. And, uh, Listen to some other verses, Job 25, 6. How much less man that is a worm and the son of man, which is a worm. This tells you what our state is like before God is living in us. Isaiah 47 says, surely the people is grass. We're just, we're just like the stuff you mow every week. That's all we are in our body until the Holy Spirit moves back in. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We are all as unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And what does the Bible say about us being God's children? How does this happen? By birth or right or by conversion or by faith? We end every show since 2006 with this verse on the screen. John 1, 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. How much clearer can it get? You are not born a child of God. He did not send you from a pre-existent state. You were born a creature, animal-like, and you have to be broken and come to God and his Holy Spirit moves in and then you become, by adoption, an heir to the throne of Christ, by adoption, a son or child of, or daughter of God. Okay, you can read Romans 8.15. It says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 3.26, For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by faith that we become his children. You are not a child of God. You sit there with your pictures of a pre-mortal existence and a bunch of like spirit kids all running around and having fun and playing with spirit balls and heavenly mother and father can't wait to send you down to your little home. It's bull. It's a myth. And what it does is it removes you from needing to understand God as the way he is. John the Beloved makes it perfectly clear uh, and when he says that we are not the children of God. Read in 1 John 3, 1. He wrote, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. That automatically shows you the world who does not know him is not his child. Neither are you until you are born again and know him. All right. Uh, how about another LDS favorite really quickly? Jeremiah 1.5, it says, where God says to the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest out from the womb, I sanctified thee and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. I'd like to read this, reread this to you so you understand 
I put the proper uh, emphasis on the right syllables, okay? Let me just read this to you the way you should read it, okay? I, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet. Okay, that's the way to read that verse. And don't let the missionary say that tells you there's a pre-existence. The eyes refer to his foreknowledge and his omniscience. They are directly tied to the womb in which Jeremiah was knit together. All right? The very fact that the LDS misapply this uh, illustration, it shows their misunderstanding of the omniscience of God. God knows all things from beginning to end. Uh, so, of course, he knows that what Jeremiah would do, what Jeremiah would be. And, of course, God sanctified Jeremiah's walk prior to Jeremiah even being formed. God knows exactly where you are, who you are, what you will do, and where you're going to end up. In the book of Revelation, it says that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. So that means we are not here for a test, and when we pass the test, God writes our names in it. It means he started off and said, these are the names that are going to be in the book, that are going to come through at the end, because he foreknows everything. Okay? You might not, I might not, but he does. Totally contradictory to what the LDS say. Finally, in John 9, 1 through 3, there's a little story that goes on. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The eldest believe that this passage proves that we lived in a pre-existent state because before this life, how could this man have been born blind? How could he have sinned? It had to have been in a state that was pre-existence. A little historicity and shows us the answer to this clearly. First of all, the fable of a pre-existent state has existed and been around a long, long time before Joseph Smith incorporated into Mormon doctrine. The Pythagoreans believed the souls of men were sent into bodies for the punishment of some sin which they had committed in a pre-existent state. That is pure Hellenistic Greek philosophy. Uh, interestingly enough, the LDS claimed Christianity was uh, bastardized by Greek philosophy. Actually, Mormons adopt more Greek philosophy into their beliefs than the Christian church has ever adopted. Okay? Um, so the disciples, when they asked this question, they said, did this man's sin in this pre-existent state that he was punished with a body of blindness or did his parents commit some sin? Most of the Asiatic nations believed in the doctrine, as we talked about last week, known as transmigration of souls. And they believed that this earthly state was a place that we endured based off what we had done in the previous life. This is the very same thing Apostle Boyd K. Packer said when he said the idea of a mortal birth, that mortal birth is the beginning, is preposterous. There is no way to explain life if you believe that. That's the, he's, he's going right along with what all the uh, Eastern uh, metaphysical, uh, Eastern mystics, uh, and even the, uh, the um, misguided Jews started believing in. What did Jesus say? He cleared it all up with a simple answer. And you notice Jesus, he doesn't give big, long dissertations on how to explain everything. He just gives you the truth. He says, neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Bottom line, point blank. That's it. There's the truth. All right. 
So what does the word of God say about our origins? Does it support a pre-existence at all? Are there passages that renounce pre-existence? The Bible taken contextually is clear as it plainly states that we are beings created out of the dust of the earth, stardust as my friend Ken would say, and animated by the breath of God. That is our existence. And that breath of God passes on down, down, down to everybody to give us life, which is a wonderful gift. But we live in a fallen state. You want to be reborn, regenerated like Jesus said, and then you are alive in him and become his child. John the Baptist said of Jesus, listen, he that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. This automatically tells you, automatically, that there's a difference between Jesus and the rest of us. Only Jesus existed with the Father. Only Jesus came forth to bear witness of who God is. Speaking to the Jews, Jesus said, you are from beneath. You're from the dust. And I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Jesus made it clear. He delineated clearly between human beings and who he was and what he was here to do. Realizing from where Jesus had come, the apostles looked on him and they said, Now we are sure that thou knowest all things and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe, by this we believe that thou camest forth from God. That was huge to believe that someone came forth from God. You did not. LDS, you did not. It's a lie. It's a myth. By embracing the fable of a pre-existence, the LDS are not only teaching something untrue, they are teaching that all of us share in a heavenly heritage, just like Jesus. They make him our brother by this association, our spirit brother, created by Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother up there. He was a spirit just like you and I were. This is absolutely anathema to the Bible. We would, no Christian would ever embrace that. Paul makes a clear distinction between earthly things like ourselves and heavenly things like the Lord in 1 Corinthians 15, 47. Speaking of Adam, Paul wrote, the first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are also they that are earthy. As is the heavenly, such are they that are also heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall, not we did, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. The doctrine of a pre-existence, misleading, mythological, leads people to accepting a fairy tale gospel and originating from the minds of men while ignoring the saving truths. To believe we have heavenly spiritual heritage might provide a delusion for people upon which they can rely on this earth, but with it comes a price. It causes people to see themselves in false terms. Uh, as good until having made a mistake, as eternal as the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as important children by virtue of a divine heritage, which only leads to false pride and spiritual and temporal arrogance, and it eliminates the absolute need to be born again. Adding insult to injury, the LDS doctrine of a pre-existence also was the foundation upon which another ugly practice came about, which we are going to talk about in two weeks, and that is of racism. So let's open up the phones, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Please, first-time callers, 
LDS callers, if at all possible, please LDS, and turn down your television sets. Now listen, Aletheia Ministries has some access to some beautiful things from Israel. We are uh, representing them on our website to help support our ministry, to help support Israel. And uh, check this little uh, bit out and you can see where to go to check them out. So that's uh, one way we try to get uh, uh, support for the ministry. Another way is we have a partners program. A lot of you uh, help us financially by sending funds in, and we appreciate it so much. We appreciate your prayers uh, even more so. We appreciate you remembering Aletheia Ministry in your prayers. If you can help financially, you can become a partner. You can find out all about that at www.hotm.tv. By going there, you can find out phone numbers you can call. You can look at ways to contact us by email. You can read all about it there. But we do appreciate anything that you do for the ministry to keep us on the air and reaching out to the LDS folk. We have someone who says, a caller says that the LDS pre-existent belief also strongly encourages large families, which puts pressures, burdens on members to multiply. And it certainly does. I mean, I remember reading, I can't tell you when, I know it happened. I think it was in the Sandy Hospital that's right off 9,000 south uh, a man who was all upset because his wife either was having another spirit he wanted his wife to have another baby she was having her tubes tied after like having six kids and he didn't want her to do that because he knew that there was another spirit up in heaven waiting to come down to their uh, family and so this type of stuff makes this idea where husbands are like hey honey we need to have more because I, I really do feel like there's a whole bunch of kids waiting up there for us and what do more kids mean? It means more members down the road, bigger church, growth, 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 and it's just insidious. Uh, another question, if there's not a pre-existence, how do you explain the war in heaven? Well, it's really simple. The hosts of heaven were angels. Satan was an angel, a cherubim, before he fell. That doesn't explain any pre-existence. Angelic beings are as different in terms of their nature as, as sea animals are to us, as a jellyfish is to us. They live in the sea, they, or, or, or these fish, they live in a different environment. Angels live in a completely different place, and their purposes are completely different, and they're made in a different hierarchy than we are, okay? So God has heavenly creations, he has earthly creations. In the heavens, there was a war, we think a war, that Revelation talks about, and Satan and, and a host were cast out because of rebellion. When Satan found in, when it was found in him that he was arrogant. That's how we explain a, a war in heaven. But it didn't have anything to do with human beings being in there. You know, like a Battlestar Galactica deal. Uh, nothing at all. That's just a myth to make you feel like... Because when they give, when they give um, patriarchal blessings in the LDS church, the patriarch will often refer to the pre-existent state of the person that he is blessing. And they will re go back and say, in the pre-existence, you were a mighty warrior. You slew many of Satan's uh, minions and came to this earth clothed in the valor of, of golden blessings. Uh, uh, not always like that, but they say things like that. 
and, and I know they do that because my brother says something like that. So, you know, that happens too. It's all this myth-making to build up the person. Another one, do Mormons think they can choose their families in heaven before they come to earth? This caller was taught this as a Latter-day Saint. Let me tell you something. They, they believe, Joseph Smith taught, that we were together in family units in the pre-existence. Another very beautiful thing for couples who are just bent on themselves. Oh, our, our lovely eternal family existed. And every spirit that comes, it just makes for such nice, nice, you know? But it's just not biblical. It's just not true. So they actually believe that the family units that were in here were the family units that we were in in the pre-existence. Now, there's a whole line of, of uh, philosophical reasoning we could go through. We don't have the time that will just show how ridiculous that is. But we, we can't do it. And I don't know if I could bring it up now if I tried. We're going to go to uh, Kathy in South Ogden. She's a first-time caller. And we're going to pick up some emails that have long been stored here on my desk. Kathy, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Kathy. Hi, Sean. My name is Kathy Vega. I'm actually um, the sister of Tom Sawaya. Oh. And the, the one who you um, did the finger service for. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to, again, tell you thank you so much for doing that for us. Oh, you're welcome. My, my question is, um, what I wanted to know is, I am a born-again Christian, and I have actually been asked this question by others that I have shared with some of the doctrine uh -huh. that do not know some of the Mormon doctrine as to how our Heavenly Father, their Heavenly Mother and Father that they call them, creating the spirit base. How do, how, how do they do that? You know, what is the Mormon belief on that? Well, Kathy, we, I don't think anyone ever says how those spirit babies are created I don't think there's anything doctrinally said. There's probably some conjecture on it. But let me tell you this. Mormon doctrine does say that God the Father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's. Okay? It doesn't have blood. It has spirit running through his veins, but he has flesh and bone, and he is a man. Right. So I would, I would assume that Heavenly Father gets with his heavenly wives, because that was doctrine taught, wives, and that he then copulates spiritually with them, and the heavenly mothers are bearing children for an eternity that populate this world and maybe other worlds to come. This is the hope for every Latter-day Saint on this earth today, that they too will be found worthy. The husband and wife sealed in the temple will die. They will go on. The husband, if he might pick up a few extra wives up there who are worthy, and I'm not making light of this. This is true. And then he and she, when they are made gods, will then populate other earths. And I'm assuming because they have physical bodies and the ability to procreate eternally, it's done through the same way that human beings populate children on this earth today. Well, well I really appreciate you for answering that. You really did make it as clear as possible. Did it, uh, and, Now, I'm, I'm curious. Isn't it funny that they kind of, in reality, they hold a, like a sex life over your head. If you don't obey everything, you lose the power to, uh, to have eternal sex. Wow. And uh, maybe it's like Lily Tomlin said, you know, in hell they have sex, but you just don't feel it. You know? Oh. <laughs> if you don't make it to the top level, you know, maybe that's what hell is to the Mormons. Oh. <laughs> Sorry if I get in trouble well, for that That one. is really, that's so sad. Um. Okay, it is. but I, I really appreciate you answering that for me, and you really did answer it for really well. Thanks so much, Kathy. Thanks for watching. 
Alrighty, thank you and God bless to you. God bless you. Bye bye. Uh, from David, he says, I have something to share with you concerning the age of this world. Uh, our pastor gave us the following question in regards to evolution. How old was Adam and Eve when God created them? They were completely grown man and woman when they were created, but on one day of their creation, they were only one day old. What if God created the heavens and earth fully grown just as Adam and Eve were? Therefore, one day of the creation, the heavens and earth would look just as old as they do today, even though they were newly created. Just some food for thought. I thought that was very interesting. Thought I'd share it with you. We also have uh, just a correction since you made mention of it a couple times. The Protestant minister was removed from the temple film in 1990. Now, when I went through the LDS temple, there was a Protestant minister who showed up, and Satan, either in the film or a live session, which was like a play where people actually played it out, would come up to this minister and, and Satan would say, hey, I'd like to pay you to preach to the, to the world. And the pr Protestant minister said, that would be fine. And Satan says, do you have the necessary education? And, and I'll pay you handsomely to do this. And, say, and the Protestant minister says, okay. And then he turns and he starts preaching, you know. And so that used to be in the LDS Temple film. Now they've taken it out. Have not changed what they believe about the Protestant faith. Do not believe for a second because they're trying to say they're Christian, that they believe that. They absolutely believe that the Protestant faith is a fallen faith. It does not have anything that will enable someone to return, as they say, to live with God again. Nothing. You have to be a Latter-day Saint. You have to be a Mormon, receive their baptism, their priesthoods, their temple endowments in order to go to live with God again. So while they've removed that from the temple, which was nice of them, uh, it also shows that they aren't as nice and loving and inviting as they say they are. All right, we are going to uh, Hunter. He is from Orem, Utah, and he is a first-time caller, and he's LDS. Hunter, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, man, um, I had two questions that I've been um, wondering about lately. Okay. Um, my first question is, um, I, I was wondering about the papyrus scrolls. Yeah. And I heard that they were mistranslated and that, like, it was totally false. It had nothing to do with um, what's in the Book of Mormon or, or the Bible. Best answer I can give you, uh, Hunter, is get the book by his own hand upon papyrus. You can get that at utlm.org online. Uh -huh. That book, read that book, and you will absolutely walk away from ever believing anything in the Pearl of Great Price. Okay. <laughs> and um, I, had, I had another question. Um, I heard that um, I, I think those two guys had um, made, like, their own plates and had just um, put, like, a bunch of random stuff. That's and, called the, um, the Kinder. The Smith. That's the Kinder. Smith. That's the Kinderhook uh, plates, and uh, you need to go and read extensively on that. It was a hoax. They came to Joseph Smith, and they said, hey, translate these plates. Now, the LDS have a response to that, which their farms, uh, the farm animals down there at BYU, they have concocted something uh, uh, as a response to the Kinderhook Kinder thing. But go on www.utlm.org and you can read all about Kinderhook and exactly how Joseph Smith was completely duped and, uh, and then was found out later. Because, long story short for the audience, 
Some guys made up some false plates, acted like they were old, did some stuff to make them look old, took them to Joseph and said, hey, can you translate these? Joseph said yes, and he translated them, and they were completely made up right there during that period. Does wow. that help? <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, man. Hey, I you're, really like your show. You're welcome, Hunter. Thanks for watching. All right. Have a great night. God bless. Bye-bye. Hey, we got an email. Uh, you want to hear the kind of emails we get? This guy writes, I challenge you to a debate if you got the guts. You will lose because I have been trained by a man named, perhaps you have met him before. He has taught me ways to counter your lies with facts. So do you have the guts to accept my challenge, sensei? I wrote back, I don't debate and I especially don't debate idiots. He wrote back, Listen, don't get all upset, Christians. You know, you got to know when you're in this, you, there, there's kind of a battle going on. Idiots, huh? How very Christian of you. You are a wolf in sheep's clothing. You spread false lies in faith. I am not surprised that you won't accept my challenge. Laughing out loud, uh, all this stuff. And by the way, button your shirt, you're gross. All right? And then I just wrote back, feel better. And he wrote back, yeah, actually. And I wrote back, excellent. Now I feel better in doing what I am called to do and being who I am and reaching out to others in the way I do and not making any excuses or apologies for it. May God bless you as you do the same. He wrote back, ha, well, I have been called by God to serve him in his church. And I wrote back, then do it. And he said, I already am. I'm serving God in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I wrote, have at it. Good luck, Godspeed, best wishes. Is there anything really more to say? And he goes on and he then begins to threaten me. And he begins to say, I'm lucky that he doesn't show up at our Bible studies and he doesn't uh, start attacking uh, me or some other people who are involved in the ministry and how I'm a self-centered and rude fool and look for some people to prank the show. And he writes and finishes, so it is written, so it shall be done. So uh, that's the kind of stuff that uh, gets in these people's crawl when you face them with the truth. And you can expect to have that kind of reaction. But uh, long story short, it makes life interesting. We're going to Brianna in Provo, first-time caller, who is LDS. Brianna, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, I'm a first-time watcher. I just had a question. I heard you talking about the LDS church. Um, I know that they have a thing that says that you have to be with a man to get sealed. So do you honestly think that I won't be able to be with my son forever because I can't get sealed to him? Why can't you be sealed to your son? Yeah. No, why can't you be, Brianna? Oh, because you have to have a man to be sealed in the temple in the LDS church. What, so you're, you weren't married to your husband? I was, but he wasn't the best. Okay, so he, was he LDS? Uh, yeah, new LDS, not uh, really. Okay, well, this is how the plan would kind of work. First of all, everybody will say, God will work it out. You stay faithful, Brianna, your whole life, and God will work out your son being sealed to you. The second thing they'll say is, if you find another man and you get married in the temple for time and all eternity, and you have to do that in order to live with Heavenly Father again, by the way, you will then be sealed to him, and your son can be sealed to the two of you, given your, your, the Father's permission, and then you can have your eternal family. But that is true. You have to be sealed to a man in order to live with Heavenly Father, again, as they say, in the uh, highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Why is that, though? I don't understand. Um, 
some women don't have choices, so they can't be with their children when they get to heaven. Well, Brianna, again, the LDS uh, bishop or somebody would fall back to the first premise, and what he would do is tie you up to membership in the church and say, Brianna, Heavenly Father loves you. He will take care of you and your son. You don't have to really stress about that, but you do have to be faithful, Brianna. You have to come to church every week. You have to pay your tithing. You have to serve in your job. You have to serve the church in order for you to have your son eternally. That's how, what they dangle over your head. And okay. I, I want you to know something. God will do exactly what is best for you and your son. He will do exactly what is best in your life, Brianna, if you trust him and him alone. So yeah. will you stay on the line and can we send you our book and will you just consider what's in it? It's not going to upset you. It's just going to lay out what, what it means to have a relationship with Christ, which will make your life and your son's life and your eternities so much better. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. Hang on the line. And Brianna, thank you for watching and keep watching and we'll talk to you later. Hold on, okay? All right. Brianna is on line two. Operators. All right, we are going to uh, Sandy in Taylorsville. No, Sandy's not there. We're going to John and Magna. John is not there. So we're going to a uh, depression in the LDS church. This is from Earl. I was suffering from undiagnosed depression in the 70s when the LDS church was preaching about how failure to live the gospel resulted in giving Satan the power to cause depression. There was a talk given by some general authority in general conference who said that if you are living the gospel, you would have no need for psychological treatment. To those who have suffered the severe depression, such as myself, the culture was particularly cruel. I want you to know that the apostles stand up today and say things in dogmatic and, and, and uh, this will never, ever happen in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They stand up and make those very emphatic statements. Do you know that, that Brigham Young stood up at the pulpit and said, believe me, this will never change. Blacks will never have the priesthood. Do you know that he said, Adam was God. That is the doctrine from the pulpit. They say these things, and while you're in the church, you believe it, and only to change it later on when a new revelation comes along and does it. I'm sorry for the pain you felt with depression. I think depression, like uh, 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 diabetes and like anything else, can need, it might need medication. And we become a little bit smarter in that. But, you know, the Lord can help with a lot of things, too. And the Lord can cure anything. But, again, depression is not a result of not following the Mormon church. Um, Going to another email, this is from Michael. What we're doing, just to let you know, is we're going through the calls and we're really trying to be particular at finding people who have pertinent questions and we're not, we're not uh, sifting through them to eliminate uh, people who have controversial questions. We're sifting through them so that we don't have people who are repeating the same, or saying, Sean, you're so good, or where's your beard, and, or all that stuff. We wanna to get to people who wanna talk about Mormonism and about their faith and their walk. And so I have, we have hundreds of emails, and so we're gonna fill those in while the operators really are trying to scrutinize the calls. This is from Michael, and he says, I've been watching your videos. Can't I be a Christian and a Latter-day Saint? So just imagine Michael just called in and said that. You know, Michael, to be a true Christian, you can be a Latter-day Saint to begin with, but it is very doubtful Highly unlikely unless God is putting you in a put you in a special missional outreach to the to the LDS for some secret clandestine mission that you're on. It's very likely you could stand sitting in those meetings 
uh, as, a, as a true born-again Christian. Because when you're really a born-again Christian, you realize it is all, everything is about Jesus. He is not, he is not predominant in your life. Jesus is not one among many things. He's, it's not Jesus and my job and my wife and my kids and my this and my that. It's, he's not predominant. He's preeminent in your life. He is everything. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is in. He is the word and the word you read. He is everything to you. And so when you sit in, in, in a LDS church and you say, I'm a Christian, and they start saying, you know, you got to go to your temple. And you know, you got you to keep your recommend. You got to pay your tithe. You got to keep the Sabbath day holy. I saw you walk into a store on Sunday. You know, you can't do that, even though Mormons do it all over this place. You can't, you, you can't drink that coffee. You know, and they just line up a bunch of stuff that have nothing to do with, with being a Christian or not. So I would suggest that it be very difficult for you to do both. All right. Um, we're coming here. Let me say this. Uh, we have Lori in Spanish Fork, who's a first-time caller. We'll take it. Lori, you're on Heart of the Matter. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to make a comment on a couple things. Yeah. One is um, Brenda and Hunter called in. And I would encourage Brenda and Hunter to study things out for themselves. And my question would be, why would LDS people call in to ask you about their faith? I think they should study it. My, my suggestion or my advice or my encouragement to them would be to study it out in their heart. Study it for themselves. Look at farms. Look at everything. And then come to find out the truth for themselves. Okay, and let I me think, ask you something, Lori. Uh-huh. Doesn't your church tell you not to go to all these different sources? Doesn't your church say study only the things that the church represents and puts out? I haven't heard that. Oh, they certainly do it. They do it from General Conference. Uh, Dallin Oaks has said that. They say stay away from the, the things that are critical. Just only read church-authorized stuff. In Sunday school and in Relief Society and Priesthood, you can't get up and teach an ad hoc lesson. You can't come and, and teach about things you want. You have a set stuff from a ma manual you have to teach from, don't you? Well, yes, we have a, we have a set manual so we can teach correct doctrine. Yeah. But we and have so not been... But we are not discouraged. Like, for example, I joined the church about seven years ago, uh -huh. and I read almost every piece of anti-Mormon literature I could find. Uh -huh. And I read, and I just found that everything, they pretty much said the same thing. They didn't have, they were all the same, and they brought up everything that I've heard tonight being brought up. And I think that there's, you, there's opposition in all things. I know you've heard that before. And in order to find truth, I really believe you have to search it out for yourself. Well, you isn't, isn't when someone, Lori, I'll let you but talk. Like, Lori, when someone ahead. searches it out for themselves, isn't this a means by which they could search? I'm giving them biblical doctrine from, from, a, from a setting that is sound. Couldn't they hear what I have to say too? What's wrong yes, with them calling and can. questioning me? Isn't that a form of searching? Yes, it's a form of searching, but also encourage them to search the other. Like you said, you know, Farms has alternative answers to yours. I would encourage them to look at that answer, too. So they, they get both sides of the judgment. I would encourage them if they want to say, you know, listen to you, great. But then also listen to what Farms or, or, or what the other well, people have to say or what the prophets have to say. Your that position you is can, good. Your position is good, yes, Lori, unfortunately. You judge for yourself. But your you church, for yourself. But your church does not suggest this, Lori. Here's the difference. Your position's fine. I say check anything out. Never be afraid of knowledge. But your church does not suggest you go and you read all the anti-Mormon stuff or watch shows like this. I'll tell you that right now. We're done. Come back next week. We'll see you here on Heart of the Matter.